0: Here, Spurgeon, a Charles Spurgeon podcast. Expiation, sermon number 561, delivered in the year 1864 by Charles Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Newington. You shall make his soul an offering for sin. Isaiah 53 verse 10 Both Jews and Gentiles knew pretty well what an offering for sin meant. The Gentiles had been in the habit of offering sacrifices. The Jews, however, had by far the clearer idea of it. And what was meant by a sin offering? Undoubtedly, it was taken for granted by the offerer that without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sins. Conscious of guilt and anxious for pardon, therefore he brought a sacrifice, the blood of which would be poured out at the foot of the altar, feeling persuaded that without sacrifice there was no satisfaction, and without satisfaction there was no pardon. Then the victim to be offered was, on all occasions, a spotless one. The most scrupulous care was taken that it should be altogether without blemish. For this idea was always connected with a sin offering that it must be sinless in itself. And being without spot or blemish or any such thing, it was considered a competent victim to take the offender's place. That done, the victim being selected, the offerer put his hand upon the sin offering And this indeed was the essence of the whole transaction. Putting his hand on the victim, he confessed his sin and a transfer took place, in type at least, from the offender to the victim. He did, as it were, put the sin from off his own shoulders onto those of the lamb or the bull or the goat, which was now about to be slaughtered. And to complete the sin offering, the priest draws his knife And kills the victim, which must be utterly consumed with fire. I say this was always the idea of a sin offering, that of a perfect victim, without any offense of its own, taking the place of the offender, the transfer of the offender's sin to that victim, and that expiation in the person of the victim for the sin done by another. Now... Jesus Christ has been made by God an offering for sin. And oh, that tonight we may be able to do in reality what the Jew did in metaphor. May we put our hand upon the head of Christ Jesus as we see him offered up upon the cross for guilty people. May we know that our sins are transferred to him. And may we be able to cry in the ecstasy of faith Great God, I am clean. Through Jesus' blood, I am clean. In trying now to expound the doctrine of Christ's being an offering for sin, we will begin by laying down one great axiom, which is that sin deserves and demands punishment. Certain theologians have objected to this. You are aware, I suppose, that there have been many theories of atonement, and every new or different theory of atonement involves a new or different theory of sin. There are some who say that there is no reason in sin itself why it should be punished, but that God punishes offenses for the sake of society at large. This is what is called the governmental theory, that it is necessary for the maintenance of good order that an offender should be punished, but that there is nothing in sin itself which absolutely requires a penalty. Now, we begin by opposing all this and asserting, and we believe we have God's warrant of it, that sin intrinsically and in itself demands and deserves the just anger of God, and that that anger should be displayed in the form of a punishment. To establish this, let me appeal to the conscience. I will not say to the conscience of a man who has by years of sin dwindled it down to the very lowest degree, but let me appeal to the conscience of an awakened sinner, a sinner under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And are we ever in our right senses, brothers and sisters, until the Holy Spirit really brings us into them? May it not be said of each of us as it was of the prodigal, he came to himself. Are we not beside ourselves until the Holy Spirit begins to enlighten us? Well, ask this person, who is now really in the possession of his true senses, whether he believes that sin deserves punishment, and his answer will be quick, sharp, and decisive. Deserve it, he asks. Yes, indeed, and the wonder is that I have not suffered it. Why, sir, it seems a marvel to me that I am not in hell. And Wesley's hymn is often on my lips. Tell it unto sinners tell. I am, I am, out of hell. Yes, sir, says such a sinner. I feel that if God should send me now, without hope or offer of mercy, to the lowest hell, I would only have what I justly deserve— And I feel that if I am not punished for my sins or if there is not some plan found by which my sin can be punished in another, I cannot understand how God can be just at all. And how shall he be the judge of all the earth if he allows offenses to go unpunished? There has been a dispute whether people have any innate ideas But surely this idea is in us as early as anything that virtue deserves reward and sin deserves punishment. People may put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, darkness for light and light for darkness, but this follows him as a dog at the heels of its master, a sense that virtue should be rewarded and that sin must be punished. You may stifle this voice, if you will, but sometimes you will hear it, and terribly and decisively it will speak in your ears and say to you, yes, God must punish you. The judge of all the earth cannot allow you to go scot-free. Add to this another matter, namely, that God has absolutely declared his displeasure against sin itself. There is a passage in Jeremiah, the 44th chapter and the 4th verse, where he calls it this abomination that I hate. And then in Deuteronomy, the 25th chapter, at the 16th verse, he speaks of it as the thing that is an abomination to him. It must be the character of God that he has a desire to do toward his creatures that which is equitable. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? If there is anything in them which deserves reward, rest assured he will not rob them of it. And on the other hand, he will do the right thing with those who have offended. If they deserve punishment, it is according to the nature and character of a just and holy God that punishment should be inflicted. And we think there is nothing more clear in scripture than the truth that sin is in itself so detestable to God that he must and will put forth all the vigor of his tremendous strength to crush it and to make the offender feel that it is an evil and a bitter thing to offend against the Most High. Beware you who forget God in this matter, lest he tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver you. Sin must be punished. The other idea that sin is only to be punished for the sake of the community involves injustice. If I am to be damned for the sake of other people, I object to it. No, sir, if I am to be punished, justice says it shall be for my own sins. But if I am to be eternally a castaway from God's presence merely as a sort of trick of government to maintain the dignity of his law, I cannot understand the justice of this. Really, when people run away from the simplicities of the gospel in order to make Jehovah more kind, it is strange how unjust and unkind they make him. Sinner. God will never destroy you merely to maintain his government or for the good of others. If you are destroyed, it will be because you would not come to him that you might have life, because you rebelled against him, because your sin compels the attribute of divine justice to kindle into vengeance and to drive you from his presence forever. Sin must be punished The reverse of this doctrine, that sin demands punishment, may be used to prove it. For it is highly immoral, dangerous, and open to the floodgates of licentiousness to teach that sin can go unpunished. It is contrary to fact. Look! Oh, if your eyes could see tonight the terrible justice of God, which is being executed now. If these ears could but hear, if you could be appalled for a moment by the groans and shrieks of tormented spirits, you would soon perceive that God is punishing sin. And if sin does not deserve to be punished, then what is hell but injustice on a monstrous scale? What is it but an infinite outrage against everything which is honest and right, if these creatures are punished for anything short of their own deserts? Go and preach this in hell, and you will have quenched the fire which is forever to burn, and the worm of conscience will die. Tell them in hell that they are not punished for sin, and you have taken away the very sting of their punishment. And then come to earth. And go like Jonah went, though with another message than Jonah carried, through the streets and highways of the exceedingly great city, and proclaim that sin is not to be punished for its own intrinsic wickedness. But if you expect your prophecy to be believed, enlarge the number of your jails. For if any doctrine can breed criminals, this will. Say that sin is not to be punished, and you have unhinged government. You have plucked up the very gate of our common blessing. You have been another Samson to another Gaza, and we shall soon have to rue the day. But sirs, I need not stop to prove it. It is written clearly upon the conscience of each person and upon the conscience of every one of us that sin must be punished. Here are you and I tonight brought into this dilemma. We have sinned. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and we must be punished for it. It is absolutely impossible that sin can be forgiven without a sacrifice. The justice of God must stand. It cannot, by any possibility, be allowed to be disputed. Let this, then, be fully established in our minds. And you do not need to be told as for the first time that God in his infinite mercy has devised a way by which justice can be satisfied and yet mercy can be triumphant. Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the father took upon himself the form of man and offered unto divine justice, that which was accepted as an equivalent for the punishment due To all his people. Now, the second matter that I wish to bring under your notice is this that the provision and acceptance of a substitute for sinners is an act of grace. It is no act of grace for a person to accept a monetary debt on my behalf from another person. If I owe a man 20 pounds, it does not matter to him whatsoever who pays the 20 pounds as long as it is duly paid. You know that you could legally and at once give an acquittance to anyone who is your debtor as long as his debt is discharged, though it is discharged by another and not by you. This is the case in monetary matters, but it is not so in penal matters. If a man is condemned to be imprisoned, There is no law, there is no justice which can compel the lawgiver to accept a substitute for him. If the sovereign should permit another to suffer in his stead, it must be the sovereign's own act and deed. He must use his own discretion as to whether he will accept the substitute or not. And if he does so, it is an act of grace. In God's case, if he had said in the infinite sovereignty of his absolute will, I will have no substitute, but each man shall suffer for himself. The soul who sins shall die. No one could have murmured. It was grace and only grace which led the divine mind to say, I will accept a substitute. There shall be a vicarious suffering and my vengeance shall be content, and my mercy shall be gratified. Now, dear friends, this grace of God is yet further magnified, not only in the allowance of the principle of substitution, but in the providing of such a substitute as Christ. On Christ's part, that he should give himself up, the prince of life, to die the king of glory to be despised and rejected by men, the Lord of angels to be a servant of servants and the ancient of days to become an infant of a span long. Think of the distance from the highest throne in glory to the cross of deepest woe and consider the matchless love which shines in Christ's gift of himself. But the father gives the son. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. To give your wealth is one thing if you make yourself poor, but to give your child is something more. When the patriot mother tears her son from her bosom and cries, Go, my firstborn, to your country's wars. There, go and fight until your country's flag is safe and the hearths and homes of your native land are secure. There is something in it. For she can imagine the bloody spectacle of her son's mangled body and yet love her country more than her own child. But God did not spare his own son, his only begotten son, but freely delivered him up for us all. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I do implore you, do not look upon the sacrifice of Christ as merely an act of vengeance on the Father's part. Never imagine, oh, never indulge the idea that Jesus died to make the Father complacent toward us. Oh no, dear friends, Jesus' death is the effect of overwhelming and infinite love on the Father's part, and every blow which wounds, every infliction which occasions sorrow, and every pang which rends his heart speaks of the Father's love as much as the joy, the everlasting triumph which now surrounds his head. Everything that we receive comes to us entirely as a gratuitous outflow of God's great heart of love. Look upon the whole transaction of a substitute and of Christ becoming the second Adam as being a matter of pure, rich, free, sovereign grace and never indulge the atrocious thought that there was justice and only justice here. But magnify the love and compassion of God in that He devised and accomplished the great plan of salvation by an atoning sacrifice. But now, to go a step further, and with as much brevity as possible, the Lord, having established the principle of substitution, having provided a substitute, and having through him bestowed on us gratuitously innumerable mercies, let us observe that Jesus is the most fitting person to be a substitute, and that his work is the most fitting work to be a satisfaction. Let every sinner here who desires to have something stable to fix his faith upon Listen to these simple truths, which I am trying to put as plainly as possible. You do understand me, I trust, that God must punish sin, that he must punish you for sin, unless someone else will suffer in your stead. And that Jesus Christ is the person who did suffer in the room and place of all those who have ever believed in him, who do believe in him, or ever shall believe in him, making for those who believe in him a complete atonement by his substitution in their place. Now, we say that Christ was the best person to be a substitute. For just consider what sort of a mediator was needed. Most absolutely, he must be one who had no debt of his own. If Christ had been at all under the law naturally, if it had been his duty to do what it is our duty to do, it is plain he could only have lived for himself, and if he had any sin of his own, he could have only died for himself, seeing his obligations to do and to suffer would have been his just due to the righteousness and the vengeance of God." But on Christ's part, there was no natural necessity for obedience, much less for obedience unto death. Who shall venture to say that the divine Lord, amidst the glories of heaven, owed to his father anything? Who shall say it was due to the divine father that Christ should be nailed to the accursed tree to suffer, bleed, and die, and then be cast into the grave? No one can dare to say such a thing. He is himself perfectly free, and therefore he can undertake for others. One man who is drawn for the militia cannot be a substitute for another person so drawn because he owes for himself his own personal service. I must, if I would escape and would procure a substitute, find a man who is not drawn and who is therefore exempt. Such is Jesus Christ. He is perfectly exempt from service and therefore can volunteer to undertake it for our sake. He is the right person. There was needed also someone with the same nature as us. Such is Jesus Christ. For this purpose, he became a man of the substance of his mother, very man, such a man as any of us. Touch him and see if he is not flesh and bones. Look at him and mark if he is not man in soul as well as in body. He hungers, he thirsts, he fears, he weeps, he rejoices, he loves, he dies. Made like us in every respect, being a man and standing exactly in a man's place, becoming a real Adam, as true an Adam as was the first Adam standing fully in the first Adam's place, he is a suitable person to become a substitute for us. But please observe. See if you cannot throw your grappling hooks upon this. The dignity of his sacred person made him the most proper person for a substitute. A mere man could at most only be a substitute for one other man crush him as you will, and make him feel in his life every pang which flesh is heir to, but he can only suffer what one man would have suffered. He could not, I will venture to say, even then have suffered an equivalent for that eternal misery which the ungodly deserve. And if he were a mere man, he must suffer precisely the same. A difference may be made in the penalty when there is a difference in the person, but if the person is the same, the penalty must be precisely and exactly the same in degree and in quality, but the dignity of the son of God, the dignity of his nature changes the whole matter. A God bowing his head and suffering and dying in his humanity puts such an astounding efficacy into every groan and every pang that his pangs do not need to be eternal. Remember that in monetary matters, you must give a quid pro quo, but that in matters of penal justice, no such thing is demanded. The dignity of the person adds a special force to the substitution. And thus, one bleeding savior can make atonement for millions of sinful people. And the captain of our salvation can bring multitudes Into glory. It needs one other condition to be fulfilled. The person so free from personal service and so truly in our nature and yet so exalted in person should also be accepted and ordained by God. Our text gives this a full solution in that it says, He shall make his soul an offering for sin. Christ did not make himself a sin offering without a warrant from the Most High. God made him so. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the sovereign degree of heaven which accounted Christ as the great substitute for his people. No man takes this office upon himself. Even the Son of God does not stoop to this burden uncalled. He was chosen as the covenant head in election. He was ordained in the divine decree to stand for his people. God the Father cannot refuse the sacrifice which he himself appointed. My son, said good old Abraham, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And he has done so in the Savior. And what God provides, God must And will accept. I wish tonight that I had power to deal with this doctrine as I want. Poor, trembling sinner, look up for a moment. Do you see him there, him whom God has set forth? Do you see him in flesh and blood fastened to that tree? See how the cruel iron drags through his tender hands. Mark how the rough nails are making the blood flow profusely from his feet. See how fever parches his tongue and dries his whole body like a potsherd. Hear the cry of his spirit, which is suffering more than his body suffers. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is none other than God's only begotten son. This is he who made the worlds. This is the express image of the father's person, the brightness of Jehovah's glory. What do you think? Is there not enough there to satisfy God? Truly it has satisfied God. Is there not enough there to satisfy you? Can you not rest your conscience on that? If God's appointed Christ could suffer in your stead, is it not enough? What more can justice ask? Will you now trust Christ with your soul? Come now. Will you now fall flat at the foot of the cross and rest your soul's eternal destiny in the pierced hands of Jesus of Nazareth? If you will, then God has made him to be a sin offering for you. But if you will not, beware, lest he whom you would not have to be your Savior should become your judge and say, Depart, you cursed one, into everlasting fire in hell. We come now to our fourth remark, that Christ's work and the effects of that work are now complete christ becomes a substitute for us we have seen how suitable and proper a person he was to be such we hinted that from the dignity of his person the pains he suffered were a good and sufficient equivalent for our own suffering on account of sin but now the joyous truth comes up that christ's work is finished christ has made an atonement so complete that he never needs to suffer again. No more drops of blood, no more pangs of heart, no more bitterness and darkness with exceeding heaviness, even unto death, are needed. Tis done. The great transaction's done. The death knell of the penalty rings in the dying words of the Savior, It is finished. Do you ask for a proof of this? Remember, that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. If he had not completed his work of penalty suffering, he would have been left in the tomb till now. Our preaching would have been in vain and your faith would have been in vain and you would still be in your sins. But Jesus rose because the account had been discharged and God's great court of king's bench sent down the order to let the captive go free. More than that, Christ has ascended up on high. Do you think he would have returned there with the stain of unexpiated sin upon his garments? Do you suppose he would have ascended to the rest and to the reward of an accomplished work? What? Sit at his father's right hand to be crowned for doing nothing and rest until his adversaries are made his footstool when he has not performed his father's will? Absurd! Impossible! His ascension amidst the acclamations of angels to the enjoyment of his father's continued smile is the sure proof that the work is complete. Complete it is, dear brothers and sisters, not only in itself, but as I said, in its effects. That is to say that there is now complete pardon for every soul who believes in Christ. You do not need to do anything to make the atonement of Christ sufficient to pardon you. It is not as if Christ had put partial pardon onto the scale and it was quivering in the balance. But your sins, with all their gravity, utterly ceased their pressure through the tremendous weight of his atonement. He has outweighed the penalty and given double for all your sins. Pardon, full and free is now presented in the name of Jesus, proclaimed to every creature under heaven for sins past, for sins present, and for sins to come, for blasphemies and murders, for drunkenness and prostitution, for all manner of sin under heaven. Jesus Christ has ascended up on high that he may give repentance and forgiveness of sin. You have no need of shillings to pay the priests, nor is baptismal water needed to effect the pardon. There is no willing, doing, being, or suffering of yours required to complete the task. The blood has filled the fountain full. You only have to wash and be clean, and your sins shall be gone forever. Justification also is finished. You know the difference. Pardon takes away our filth, but then it leaves us naked. Justification puts a royal robe upon us. Now no rags of yours are needed. Not a stitch of yours is needed to perfect what Christ has done. He whom God the Father has accepted as a sin offering has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You are complete in Christ no tears of yours, no penance, no personal mortifications, no, no good works of yours are needed to make yourself complete and perfect. Take it as it is. Oh, my friends, may you have grace to take it as it is freely presented to you in the gospel. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Trust Christ, implicitly trust Christ, and all that He did shall cover you, while all that He suffered shall cleanse you. Remember also that acceptance is finished. There are the Father's arms, and here are you, a vile sinner, tonight. I do not know you, but it may be that you have gone to the lowest vice perhaps to drunkenness or robbery. Who knows what manner of person may step into this place, but the great arms of the eternal father are ready to save you as you are because the great work of Christ has effected all that is needed before God for the acceptance of the vilest sinner. How is it that the father can embrace the prodigal? Why he is fresh from the pig pen, Look at him. Look at his rags, how foul they are. We would not touch them with a pair of tongs. Take them to the fire and burn the filth. Take him to the bath and wash him. That lip is not fit to kiss. Those filthy lips cannot be permitted to touch that holy cheek of the glorious father. Ah, but it is so. While he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. Rags and poverty and sin and filth and all. And he did not wait till he was clean, but ran and fell upon his neck and kissed him, just as he was. How could he do that? The parable does not tell us, for it did not go on with the subject to introduce the atonement, but this explains it. When God accepts a sinner, he is in fact only accepting Christ, he looks into the sinner's eyes and he sees his own dear son's image there and he takes him in. As we have heard of a good woman who, whenever a poor sailor came to her door, whoever he might be, would always welcome him in because she said, I think I see my own dear son who has been away these many years and I have never heard from him. But whenever I see a sailor, I think of him. And treat the stranger kindly for my son's sake. So, my God, when he sees a sinner longing for pardon and desirous of being accepted, thinks he sees his son in him and accepts him for his son's sake. Do not imagine that we preach a gospel in this place for respectable, godly people. No, we preach a gospel here for sinners. I heard the other day from one who told me that he believed we were saved by being perfect, that when we committed sin, we at once fell out of God's mercy. Well now, supposing that were true, it would not be worth any applause. It would not be worth the angels singing, glory to God in the highest. Any fool might know that God would accept a perfect man, But this is the thing of marvel for which heaven and earth shall ring with the praises of the mediator that Jesus Christ died for the ungodly, that Jesus Christ gave himself for their sin, not for their righteousness, not for their good deeds. If he had looked to all eternity, he could not have seen anything in us worthy of so great a suffering as that which he endured." But he did it for charity's sake, for love's sake. And now, in his name, oh, that I could do it with his voice and with his love and with his fervor. I do beseech you to lay hold upon him. No matter who you may be, I will not exclude you from the invitation. Have you piled your sins together till they seem to provoke heaven? Do your sins touch the clouds yet come and welcome for God has provided a sin offering. Has man cast you out? Say poor woman, does the dreary river seem to invite you to the fatal plunge? God has not cast you out. Oh, you who feel in your own body, the effect of your sin till you loathe yourself and wish you had never been born. Perhaps you say like John Bunyan, Oh, that I had been a frog or a toad or a snake sooner than have been a man to have fallen into such sin and to have become so foul. Have courage, sinner. Have courage. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Do not doubt this message. God has sent it to you. Do not reject it. You will reject your own life if you do. Turn to him at his rebuke. It is a loving voice that speaks to you. I implore you, sinner, come to Jesus. If you are damned, it is not for lack of invitation. If you will perish, it is not for lack of earnest pleading with you. I tell you, there is nothing of your own needed. All this is found in the sin offering. There is no merit of yours needed. There is merit enough in Christ. Is it not the old proverb that you are not to take coals to Newcastle? Do not take anything to Christ. Come as you are, just as you are. Do not wait until you leave this place. The Lord enable you to believe in Jesus now To take him now as a complete and finished salvation for you, though you may be the most depressed and abandoned and hopeless of all characters. Why did God provide a sin offering except for sinners? He would not have needed to provide it if there was no necessity. You have a great necessity. You have, shall I say, compelled him to it. Your sins have nailed Christ's hands to the cross. Your sins have pierced his heart and his heart is not pierced in vain. Nor are those hands nailed there for nothing. Christ will have you, sinner. Christ will have you. There are some of God's elect here and he will have you. You shall not stand against him. Almighty love will have you the Lord will yet fetch you up from the depths of the sea. Oh, what a debtor to grace you will be. Be a debtor to that grace tonight. Overhead and ears in debt, plunge yourself by a simple act of trusting in Jesus and you will be saved. And pray, you who know how to pray, that this message may be made effective in the hand of God. And you who have never prayed before, God help you to pray now. May he now be found by them who did not seek for him. And he shall have the glory, world without end. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon originally preached by Charles Spurgeon. Some of the older language has been updated. Feel free to duplicate and distribute this material, but please do not charge anyone for it or in any way alter the content without permission. You can support this ministry by subscribing, liking, following, sharing, and leaving us positive reviews. Most importantly, please join with us in praying that God would use these sermons to both save those who are lost and impassion his people for his glory.